Bontari, Bontari, good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Sincerely Carolina. Today we're going to talk about early intervention for children with special needs. Some of you may already know what that means, some of you may not, but don't worry, we'll talk all about it. This episode, we are going back to English, um, but however, if you have questions in Papiamento, we will do our best to answer either during the show or in the comment section later, so don't worry about that. Um, welcome everyone. I wanna let you guys introduce yourself. So we have three guests today. We have two international guests um, from the U.S. and another local guest. So I'm gonna go ahead and start with Mike. <laughs> Dr. Abel, can you please introduce yourself and tell us why you're in Aruba? Sure, I'm so happy to do that. My name is Mike Abel. I am the associate director at the University of Missouri's Kansas City's Institute for Human Development. We are the University Center for Excellence on Developmental Disabilities, and we focus on serving people with disabilities across the lifespan. Thank you. That was a really good introduction. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to head over to um, Anouk. Anouk, can you do a small introduction, please? Hi, for those who don't know me, my name is Anouk Eman. Um, I'm mostly known here for the modeling world. Um, and today I can officially say that I've been working on a project and I will be talking about this more on my social media. It is a early intervention um, system that we're gonna be creating for Aruba. And just a little bit of background, um, I studied in the United States and my professor is actually here with me in the studio and in Aruba, which I still can't believe. Um, my bachelor is in, is in psychology and um, I did my master's in early intervention in autism and sensory impairment. So that's a little bit about myself. Um, and I think we're gonna talk a little bit more about the project once we get there. That's a mouthful. And like you yes. said, Anouk, I don't think that a lot of people know this about you. So I'm really excited to see people's reaction too. Um, I always tell people when they ask me like, oh, I saw that Anouk was involved with Fundashom or something. What does she do? You know, people don't know. Yes, I actually didn't want to, wanted to um, say anything about the project yet until it's actually everything is, you know, until you guys are here in Aruba because I wanted to make sure that this is completely a go and then I'm more than willing to talk about it now on my social media. Awesome. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank All you. right. Dr. Kelly, can you introduce yourself? I am happy to be here. Um, so I am Kelly Hantak. I am a senior research associate at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Institute for Human Development. And before I came to UMKC, I was a professor at the institution and Nook was a student. <laughs> and so this is every professor's dream is to see their students' dreams come true. I cannot thank everyone enough for having us here and to be able to see this project get off the ground. My background is not only in research, but in early intervention and early childhood special ed. I have been a teacher and administrator, and I do still have a very small caseload of children who participate in the early intervention program in the state of Missouri back in the United States. Thank you so much <laughs> for all of these answers. All right, um, so let's start with the basic, right? I think Kelly, you might you might want to answer this. Um, but what is early intervention? Tell us a little bit about what that is. So early intervention is usually for infants and toddlers, so children from birth up to age three years of age, and. You know, parents or teachers realize something just is not exactly right in the way that the child is developing. It could be a medical condition. It could be a visual something impairment, exactly a hearing impairment. It just depends on the child. So as an early interventionist, I work with children who, through an assessment piece, have been um, known to have a developmental delay or disability. And so I go in and I implement strategies to help the child gain those skills through basically through play. You go, you have fun, and you share with the parents what they can do at home when I'm not there. 
All right. I think that was a, a very good answer. I mean, um, so you guys are here in Aruba. I mean, we have talked in my show and just in the news in general. There's a lot of questions about our waiting list to get diagnosis. Um, you know, when, when we share numbers, especially from like the Autism Foundation, when you share numbers, when you see the age that children get a diagnosis in the U.S. or you know, other developed countries, really, um, the age is much younger than it is on our island. And it has to do a lot with who notices these differences and who signals these differences. And here we have noticed a trend that this happens at a later age because children are in larger classrooms and the teachers, you know, start to notice. But we also have a lot of um, parents who even from like a really young age from that that age gap, right, from zero to three or zero to five, they start to notice, especially if they have, like, an older um, child already and they notice that the development is kind of different, they start to signal, you know, I think there might be something different. But our culture has, you know, told people, you know, it's okay, give them some time. I even see, like, on Facebook, on the groups, um, on the most random groups, people ask questions like, oh, my child is four, and he or she doesn't speak yet. Is this okay? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, you shouldn't be asking this in a Facebook group, you know, <laughs> unless it's filled with professionals. But, I mean. <laughs> the parents made a support system, too. Sometimes, you know, just like children learn from each other, parents learn from each other as yes. well. And so there is a place, but yes, they should not be getting expert advice just from somebody off of Facebook unless it is a professional. Exactly. And what you see is that some people, because that's part of our culture, they'll say like, oh, you know, give them some time. It will be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and once in a while you'll see a post, uh, you know, they tag us like our foundation mm-hmm. sometimes or you met Crystal today right. from from FEPO, especially if it has to do with speech, they'll tag mm-hmm. her or FEPO and they'll say like, you know, and then they'll say, like, maybe this is something you should consider talking with your primary physician or, you know, somebody right. else who who might have some some input. But, um, yes. So, um, Mike, can you tell us a little bit about why early intervention in itself, like, why it's important um, and how it benefits children with special needs in general? Like, what's, what's the added value of doing this? I really appreciate the context that you set this in about <laughs> parents and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, what parent doesn't want their child to believe the very best about their child? Every parent wants to think, my child is going to do fine. My child is going to be okay. But the reality is that an early intervention is the key to their success. And if the child has a delay, it's not something to be like, oh, my child isn't doing well or, or my, there's something wrong with my child. All people have strengths and weaknesses. All people have things about them that they need a support in. And so it's better to think about it in terms of what can I do with my child or for my child to help them grow into everything that they could be. And so early inter- we know so- the science tells us that early intervention is the key. The sooner and the earlier that we can intervene, the sooner that we can start uh, uh, helping children receive different kinds of services, the better they're going to be in the long run. If you wait until they go to school and you wait for the teacher to identify those things, then it's like they're already behind. So why wouldn't you want your child to be to go to school sort of ready and, and, and prepared and have the support pl- supports that are already in place when they, when they go to school. And so, and, and the other thing that I think that we forget about or we don't think about, like how early or how soon should we uh, try to help a child is when there's other significant life events, like big trauma things that happen, uh, changes in their family structure, or, or substance abuse issues or violence. When those things occur in a child's life, it's, it's serious. And, and, and we often just think, well, they'll be okay. And I certainly have seen cases of children where um, uh, the family members didn't really think that it was important to get that child the help they need. And they languish for a long time 
and then they don't really um, they have problems. So it's better to it's better to just deal with it and face it and understand it and get those kids the help that they need. Yes, and um, you know, going back to to what you said that sometimes they wait, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with something that they're born with, but also with events. Um, I studied in the U.S. as well, and I used to through my school. We used to work as mentors for for elementary schools who worked in an inclusive setting. Very nice work. That's what sparked my my you know wanting to go back to Aruba and kind of implement this here. But um, I remember. I was working with different children with different special needs, and um, there was this one boy, and he had switched from four different schools because his behavior, you know, he was aggressive and he would bite. Um, so at some point, you know, I get the case, and, and they're like, okay, Carolina, this is, he bites. You know, I, I laughed because I used to do this at some point too when I was younger, and I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And I'm like, you know, does he have any diagnosis for anything? Like, is there anything that might be causing this behavior and they're like no um however it has caused issues enough for them to push him out out of schools and this is his fourth school and this is kind of like the end of the line you know so he really needs a support system so he had like different people working with him at school and then i would come in for lunchtime and we will have like one hour i would sit in class and all this stuff um and so, you know, we would hang out in in one-on-one settings. It was much smoother, of course. You know, there are much less, like, um, inputs, sensory inputs, everything. Like, he was just calmer when we were one-on-one. He would express himself. I would say when something's not okay or not. You know, I would ask him, like, how are you feeling before he decides he's angry and he wants to bite, right? Um, and then, you know, we, in the classroom, right, that school in particular, they made sure that every classroom had like a safe space. So he would just, you know, stand up. We talked about it. When you feel kind of angry, like it's coming, go sit in there, take your time, you know, just breathe in and out. Anyway, so time was passing by and then all these like little things started coming up. So he couldn't see well. He needed glasses. So he got glasses that helped, you know. Um, He started feeling nicer, right? Um, so this was like such a huge switch from the moment he got his glasses. He was like, like so much less irritable. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this one little thing, simple simple things that they didn't notice that he was struggling to look at the board. So he was getting frustrated during class because he couldn't look, you know? So that was one thing. Um, and then it turns out that, um, his parents had a new baby. He was coping with that. So there was, like, all these little things that, you know, if you look at them separately, shouldn't have been a big issue, but they were irritating enough for him, and it was simple things that they could have seen and intervened, and, you know, then he talked to somebody about siblings and sharing attention and, you know, how that works, and it was just like this, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, and all this time, you know, it was only getting worse because he's switching from schools. This is also not okay. His environment keeps changing, his friends and all this stuff. But I don't think that that his parents thought that, you know, a baby would irritate him so much and that maybe him sitting in the front of the TV or something would have been something to be concerned about. Um, and these are little things that, that, you know, parents, I don't, I don't think any parent, you know, when they have a baby, they think like, oh my gosh, I'm going to look out for what is wrong, right? Or what is different. They hope (laughs) and, and really look forward to a child who completes his developmental or her developmental goals like any other child. And I think we really need to, um, to tell parents that it's okay, like what Kelly was saying, like, you know, have parents talk to each other, like, it's okay, like, it's not a death sentence if your child needs something, you know, Um, but that is hard, it's hard in a culture like this one, because it's so small, and everybody knows each other, and it's almost like parents carry the burden of that, so. um, It's also important not to blame, so it's important not to blame. It's like it's not necessarily someone's fault. Mm-hmm. And so it's important not to say, well, it's your fault that this child is having problems. It's also not helpful to think about just observing a child's behavior and assigning uh, a blame to the child. 
like the whole biting incident mm-hmm. is like, what's wrong with this child? They're biting. Well, who would have thought that it that there's a reason why right. the child is having the sort of the challenges or having the having the frustration? Mm-hmm. Oh, he needs glasses. <laughs> it's like, what a simple fix. Yep. And in many cases, children with develop, developmental delays or disabilities, those problems are complex. And it's not as simple as just glasses. Mm-hmm. And that's why they need expert help to help them figure that out. Indeed. And and again, like that that sense of like trying to to get answers of why. I think we spend way too much time on, on the why. So when I work with parents, a lot of times I find myself saying, Yes, you're asking why, but I even as an expert, I do not have the answer. You could go to doctors around the world and they may not have the answer. Sometimes it's just a biological cause or sometimes it's as simple as I moved houses. Um, But sometimes it can be more complex. And so it's important for the professionals to, to reassure the parents to say, I'm not making judgments. I'm here to help you. And a lot of times, every time I end a session, so when I visit with the child and their family, it's for an hour at a time, I start with the question, what's new this week? What has happened? And I end every visit with, what do you need from me over the next week? Like, what can I do for you? And if you have an issue, let me know. I'm the type of professional, it's not always the best way, but a lot of them have my cell phone number and they will text me at 2 a.m. saying I have this detrimental event happening. And there are times where I say, okay, we need to call, you know, for help um, at 2 a.m. But there are other times I'm like, okay, it's just take a deep breath. It will be okay. And we'll work through it together. And I make sure that they're safe that's priority. Safety is non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. And then what can we do? How can we work together? And that's also why you have a whole team of different types of professionals. We only work within our environment. So if we are in a chaotic environment, your behaviors are going to be chaotic. It would be the same way as adults. And sometimes adults do not handle it as well as mm-hmm. the child might. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's okay. It is okay. See, there we go. It's okay. <laughs> we'll get through it. And that's what brings the excitement to this project exactly. is that everyone is wanting to say to parents, it is okay. And we are here to help you. We are here to support you. But what do you need? And that's the big question right now is what are the needs for the children and families? And that's part of why Mike and I are here is to help through that. And I just wanted to add to that how you say, like, at 2 a.m., you're willing to help a family. And I think that's also something that families here struggle with. Not that I want to say that there's no help, because there is, but there is a lack of a team here. And that's where the early intervention is going to come in and how parents are going to feel like they know um, how to get help, where to get help, because that's a big issue here that they don't know where to go and when to go. So it's something very necessary here, and I'm super happy that you guys are here. I'm so happy yes. that all of you are <laughs> here, including Anouk. <laughs> I, I we are to be here and to help. And, you know, this topic is near and dear to my heart. It's a not only, once again, not only am I a researcher, but I am dedicated and advocate on behalf of young children. And I am so thrilled that Mike was able to come along and help work through and develop the program as well. So it's very exciting. I am very happy and excited too. So, I mean, I can't, we kind of touch a little bit of that, but, um, you know, we're here in Aruba because we don't have this program and we have noticed that there is a need. You know, we talked about like the ages of diagnosis being later on. Children only receive starting to receive help when, you know, they're maybe in like second grade of elementary school. So um, what, you know, what do you think as professionals? And I know that Anouk has shared a lot of information with you and I'll let Anouk um, talk a little bit about that too. What can we benefit here in Aruba from from such a program? So the biggest benefit is 
to set up an environment and have the professionals trained to help children to be successful. If And it also deeps into the parents. If the parents feel successful, and even though life is not perfect, what can the professionals do to help them? So we are actually... Um, planning additional activities. Uh, I can let Anuk share, you know, some of that at some point in time. Um, But we have big plans and I am planning a return trip (laughs) and to be um, actually starting to um, look at some children and to see if we can see some trends um, and see if it is something as simple as, oh, they need glasses or, oh, they need a hearing aid or, oh, there's something developmentally and they need more what's called intensive services. Maybe they need more of the one-on-one care um, because that's what the child needs at that time. It does not mean that they will need that for their entire educational career or lifetime. Some individuals do, but that's the purpose of early intervention. If you figure it out soon enough... so. A little bit about my background. I have a behavior analysis degree as well as an education degree. So with that combination, I have really learned that you can teach children at a very young age how to develop those coping skills, and they can carry it through their lifetime. I've been in the field now for... Too long. <laughs> a long time. I was telling telling them earlier today, I actually started teaching when I was 16 years old. I had the first yes. opportunity to teach, and I, it's been going for a long time. But for 20 years as an early interventionist, I'm able to see the children I had when they were one, two, three years old all the way up. And now that I see that they are in college, they are obtaining degrees, they have their dream jobs, some of them have gone into technical fields and working with their hands because guess what? When they were two, they were taking things apart at home. I have a friend who came home one day and her son had taken the blender, the television, <laughs> the microwave apart, oh and gosh. he's now a mechanic. So, you know, there's a nice. place for everyone. everyone. Thank you, thank you. Anouk, um, so maybe, yeah. Yeah, what I wanted to share as well, um, what we've spoken about, um, Kelly, is how you guys have so many years of experience and there is a system that is working in the United States, but how you shared with me coming to Aruba and where we have nothing is also a benefit to us. It's not only bad. <laughs> it's also nice that we get to create a system with certain things that are not fully functioning in the United States that you guys already know that we can actually do it better here. So I want you to share a little bit about what you've told me about the culture difference and how we're going to create it, especially for Aruba and not copying a system from the United States and just, it's going to work here. Right. So that's part of this. When I agreed to do the project, My big condition was it would not be a replication of the United States system because the same way that we would individualize education for children who qualify for services, by no means were we going to come here and say, you must do it this way. There are benefits to our system. There are challenges to our system. So the beauty for this for you that I see is you get to create the system that is going to work for the children and the families here in Aruba. So what does that look like? I'm not quite sure. That's kind of up for the residents of Aruba to, you know, state. What do they, so once again, here's my questions. How is your week and what do you need? And then we, we can help develop those things. And I also like that, um, I don't think we've mentioned this, Carolina, but we have um, workshops in the morning and how we have all the key stakeholders also at this workshop and how together we are creating this system. So it's not only the professionals creating the system, it's an entire team that hopefully we will be working together in the future. I think that's, you know, what you mentioned at the beginning, too. That's something that we have been missing. So we actually, you know, we have done some some inventory of what services we have, what our insurance cover, um, you know, what's available, you know, outside, what NGOs, with the possibility of getting grants, of sponsorship, 
everything. And what we realized is that we are missing opportunities because we aren't working as well together, um, but we are working in silos. And that's that's something you mentioned today. And, and it's it's so clear sometimes. So I'm really happy that, that you know, we have this summit and that we have so many different key stakeholders, you know, coming and thinking together and just, you know, voicing opinions, maybe grievances even of things that we wish were a little bit different because now is the time to create something that we all had input in because that also helps with the accountability of carrying the project and making sure that it's successful because it's ours, you know? And that's something that, that I'm definitely looking forward to. And I think that's what we need more of, you know? And, and because we are a developing island nation and um, because we are, you know, we are located in a place that we get to pick and choose information, you know? We get to pick stuff from the Netherlands, from the US, from Latin America, what works, you know? And we get to create our own... Um, and I don't think we take advantage enough of that. Mm-hmm. So, so, but I'm happy, you know, with the younger professionals coming in and everything that we, you know, push the organizations to think a little bit outside the box and be like, hey. Carolina, <laughs> do you even think about how many years we've been planning this? <laughs> Today was a very emotional day for yep. me. It, it's unbelievable. And um, I definitely wanted to mention, too, how this all started was because of my cousin, Delma Adams. Yep. Um, after I finished my um, bachelor, she was like, okay, what are you going to do for your master's? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm sure it's going to be something with kids. So she was like, what about autism? And I was like, okay, let me do some research. And then um, that is where I met you, actually, um, Dr. Kelly. And I fell in love with this program. And I am so happy I did it because there are not a lot of professionals here in this, um, in this area. And when I got to meet Carolina, I was like, I am sure I want Carolina on board. She has such passion for this, and it is going to be great. I'm very sure of that. I'm convinced, too. (laughs) I'd like to point out that um, one of the things that I've noticed is that you are not a country without resources. You really do have a lot of the elements of an effective system that already exist here, but, but they're not very coordinated. And so there's not really a sort of a systematic approach to identifying children um, uh, with developmental delays and then figuring out how do they flow through the system? How do all the different component parts work together? But I also want to encourage you in realizing right here in Aruba, you already have a lot of the elements that are necessary to make that happen. So it's not as big a leap as perhaps you think. No, That's and I, greatness. yes, and I think that is something that, that a lot of stakeholders know, and, and, you know, that's why they have been pushing, and I think that's why the response was so positive for this, too, because we, we sort of know this, so um, in the past couple of months, you know, April was Autism Awareness Month, so we had been working a lot on awareness campaigns, we had some great interns, and, you know, now it's coming to the end, but anyways, <laughs> But we had some really great interns, and, and one of uh, the projects was for, for one of the interns to make a guidebook. And, you know, she had to do research on her guidebook, you figure out which services we have in Aruba. And it was amazing. I'm the president of the organization, and I figured out all these new things. I'm like, I don't know that existed, you know? Right. And, and she, she found out all these things. So now when we answer to parents, like, they reach out to us. Um, so I have a suspicion, where do I go? We have this list of places that they could actually go to. And of course, you know, there are some waiting times and that's what you get in small places and places that are subsidized or, or, you know, government run. So that's fine. But that there are even that many options, but then we get the other problem. So there's no network with these groups so somebody might go here and you know they might be going through a program and then they go there and then they start all over again which is kind of a waste of resources because nobody's working on on you know the same protocol or like the same guidelines and 
Well, and something that I will find, too, when working with families is they are taking their child to this program and then this program and then this program and then this program. And by the time you put it all together, the family thinks more is better. And now you have an exhausted child who cannot function because he's been to so many different places with different points of views. And sometimes there are mixed messages there. So that's another reason to have an integrated system. Communication is key. That's what I say all the time. You have to be able to communicate not only what you need, but what are you doing to help? And letting people know, okay, we can do this part, but we might need to call somebody in for specialized care or strategies and then bring them in. And they may be there for a while and they may need to step out because the child has just flourished by having the right things for them. I agree, I agree, and um, you hear this. I mean, it's not just an Aruba bit, but like you just mentioned. Um, and again, the benefit that we have, because we do have to look at these little things that, you know, because we are so small and because it's government-funded, um, either, you know, through our national healthcare insurance plan or directly from the government, we can actually push for systems, you know, that are funded by the government to make sure that we are being efficient. And this will be at the benefit of everyone, Mm -hmm. where it's easier, you know, for people to, or, or, you know, the people working with the child to be able to just check in and see like, oh, this is what we're working on, you know, have a dashboard, like um, have group meetings, you know, we were talking about that, like how how often are we gonna have these multidisciplinary meetings? And I'm sure Uleika shared a little bit about what she um, experiences because she gives a private service Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, one of the issues come in because she provides a private service. um, So parents are paying for this, but it's only as successful as the other persons in the child's life Mm -hmm. are involved in the process. So sometimes she'll reach out to teachers, you know, really try to work on things. This is even something happened with my niece, my little niece. Um, She's nine and she has um, inattentive ADHD or or suspicion. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. we did all the, (laughs) you know, all the screenings. And one of the things that, that Uleika suggested, you know, working with her, she was like, um, we really would benefit from her having fidget toys during class. Something that she would constantly be, you know, but then the teacher takes it away, right? right? right, right. <laughs> My rule always was you had to use the fidget appropriately. If you couldn't use it appropriately, <laughs> then you couldn't have it. But I will tell you, even in my the college students, I, would, I have this huge fidget box. And so I would bring it in to demonstrate fidgets, and I would have half the students would absolutely love it, and the other half would say, that is bugging me. Please stop. <laughs> you know? Um, and why, why should we even have this? But once again, it goes back to what does the child show what, does, right, what does the child need? What's going to help them be successful? Because sometimes having things like your poppers right there, they just need one minute, 60 seconds yep. to fidget with it, and then they will attend for the next 30 minutes. So for those of you that don't know what fidget toys are, and they work for me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I carry them in my bag, and this is my work badge. And it's so funny because, so for those of you that don't know, like this is a squeezy or something like that. My niece knows all the names. Right. But um, so I have it on my work badge, and I carry it. And anytime, like, I'm waiting for my turn to speak, that's the thing that I need to work on. <laughs> so I just squeeze it, and it helps me because, you know, I am releasing energy, but not by speaking and then like you said like the puppet when I'm stuck with a thought I just you know sit for a little bit and I do like shapes with the puppet and just focus hyper focus on that one thing and then the idea comes back flowing and these are little things and like what you said you know it's how you use them right so so one of the projects that we're working with with the interns is that we got fidget boxes to give to 50 teachers and I told them, we can't just give teachers fidget boxes. They need to understand what Why? each fidget works with. Because children are smart. Well, you will also find <laughs> the teachers using the fidget. Yeah, yeah. Not only do the children use it, but the teachers use it. So you have to, t- and I've had that happen where I've taken fidgets in, and I walk in, and it's the teacher using it, not the child that's yep. for it. So I'm bringing more in for the teachers. 
But, you know, I noticed that that I was talking to my niece. We go fidget shopping, and then she's like... And then I started asking. I'm like, Ashley, what do you use that one for? And then when she actually has an answer, she'll tell me. She's like, no, yes. She has one that goes on her pencil, and she'll bite on it or, you know, play with her finger on it. But then she'll get other ones, and I'm like, what what do you need this one for? Like, And then she's like... And I'm like, ah. Oh. So you're not actually using it because you need to. You just think it's fun. So what we did, I told the interns, I'm like, we need to create a guidebook so that teachers understand what each fidget helps with. So kids can, you know, get smart and outsmart the teacher and be like, yeah, I really need this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. So go back to those behaviors we were talking about. Yes. Who's doing what? And that honestly is what it kind of comes down to, is we all react to our environment, um, adults and children. And some just need other things to do. Some people, they like to snap. Some people like to chew gum. Um, I always say marathon runners. I cannot think, or an Olympic athlete, you know, where they feel like they have to constantly move because... I don't, I'm not a runner, so I don't understand why being a marathon runner, you know, is so wonderful. No offense <laughs> to marathon runner listening. I just don't understand, so feel free to enlighten me. But, you know, when you run, you're getting joint input through your arms and your knees and your wrists and your ankles, and that makes people feel good. People like to do things that help them feel good. And think about it like you were saying. If you know, some people like to do word puzzles or fidget or run to be able to prepare themselves for the day. I'm going to call Mike out. Mike likes to go swimming every morning, you know, before he starts his work day. Um, that's what that's people great. need. And go for, I say go for it. If it's safe and it helps you and it makes you successful and it helps the child be successful, figure out a way and do the best that you can to do it. I think we have been too caught up on, like, the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you know UCP of Central Florida, um, but it's a charter school system, and they're inclusive. And I have worked with one of their schools, and I still am in touch with them. So I went to the scores, and they also want to help out, especially with, like, the elementary schools and stuff. And um, one of the greatest things that I have learned is just letting go of that idea that children need to sit at a desk um, and just be quiet for a certain amount of time. So the classrooms were set up inclusively. So you'll have some areas that have like a carpet, then others don't because some children like the feeling of carpets. You know, some have like the bouncy chairs and some have regular chairs. So children just come in and especially at the beginning, they figure out which one they like best and you kind of stick to it. And, you know, they just do their work and and. When we think about that, you know, we spend so much time on trying to stick to that rule, that, that, that system. But if it helps for the child to sit on the floor on a carpet and he or she is doing the same mathematic work, you know, or if he or she is reading what he or she is supposed to be reading, why does it matter if he's sitting upside mm-hmm. down, right? Right. And, I mean, of course, they need to learn some structure and stuff, but it's, it's to what extent it's so important, so those skills can be still incorporated throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Structure can still be be there. But I always say to parents, you know, when my children woke up in the morning, I didn't say, okay, come into the kitchen for breakfast and we're going to sing a hello song and see who got up this morning, the same way you do in a preschool classroom. Yep. So there's times for that, but then there's times where they can be a child. You need to meet their needs. So going back to if you have a child who is having difficulties or who has a diagnosis, that still doesn't exclude them from things as well. You know, a lot of the children that I see, they still do the same things as their peers. It's just a different way. And when we start talking about terms like typical and normal, I've always challenged my college students to find and bring me a typical child or a normal child. (laughs) I have been in higher ed for almost 20 years, and no one has brought me that child yet. So maybe they exist here in (laughs) Arizona, but so far no one has been able. You know, so we always say typical and normal. What we're referencing is 
the typical trajectory of development. And that's it. Yeah. I have a question here. Yeah, from, I was going to say, Carolina, I see this comment, and, yep. and the end is something that is happening. Yes. The I'm going to, should I read her aloud? Yes. Yes. So, um, someone saying that we really have to have this discussion. Um, because what she's saying is that for children with motor skills um, issues, um, they are not really getting the much-needed therapy. And, um, you know, sometimes they have to wait up to two years to get the professionals, you know, the waiting list. And a lot of parents, especially if their needs are, you know, more than than what can be offered here in Aruba, parents decide to move away, um, which is harsh on parents because, you know, especially if they have their own support system here, it's not like you're driving four hours away. You literally have to move, you know, and it's, it's, it's harsh. So, you know, I mean, we can't fix this from one day to another, but one of the ideas that we, we have been playing a lot with is the idea of having services, you know, in the schools, like where you have occupational therapists so that, you know, it's, it's barriers so that parents don't have to take them out, go to the therapy, come back. You know, like here in Aruba, we don't have many after school programs. So school finishes at one, two or three, depending on their age. And then the schools stay empty, you know, so we have all these spaces where we could actually make use of, you know, more recreational things for children, but also the more therapeutic things, um, you know, the, the programs where you have trained the trainers and all that stuff. Like we're not maximizing these resources that we already have. Um, and, you know, this frustration is the same frustration that a lot of parents have. So I don't know. What are any thoughts that you, you might have for these parents, you know, going through this and, and just being at this level of frustration that I just want to leave, you know? Yeah, that's the sad part. So first of all, let me say thank you to the parent for having the courage to bring this up because it is hard. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have the best solution, but what comes to my mind is, you know, if the school is empty, then why not have some way for like a physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist to be at the schools and then have the child be there. But once again, you're getting into complex systems and we're not sure, mm -hmm. you know, how that would work. So that's where we're going to open this discussion. Like, I think that's a very valid point to yep. keep in mind this week. And especially tomorrow we're doing a share out stories. Mm -hmm. And so let's think about that story and think about okay what can be next that's the beauty of this you can create it how you think it's going to fit well for the children and the families so i'm not going to tell you what to do but i can facilitate and we can look at all of those factors and mike i don't know if you it's, have additional thoughts it's also important to remember that that parents are their child's best advocate yes and so um it doesn't matter what the teacher or the therapist or the system or the government thinks. Nobody knows their child quite like the parent. And so um, uh, part of this, this way is to change our thinking. So if the teacher thinks that this is the way I run, I've run my classroom for 20 years and the children come in and they sit in this, in this configuration and everybody has to do it exactly the same, then, then that teacher needs to think differently because of like you were describing this sort of innovative approach that there's different places for children to sit. Doesn't mean they can't do their math over there and they can't do it over here in different ways. So expanding or broadening our thinking who and why are we putting children in a box mm -hmm. and saying this is that we have to confine it to this method or this specific way? And so thinking outside that box is really an important part of understanding how we can benefit all children in our society and how all children need opportunities to function and, and, and to navigate and to grow and 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 we, we um, need to think about how do, we, how do we deal with mistakes? So 
Uh, we as professionals make mistakes. Children make mistakes. Families make mistakes. How do we get beyond that idea of making mistakes and at the same time it's, it's like, oh, well, that wasn't the best choice. Exactly. Now we can make another choice. Now we can improve this for this child so that they can be successful. I think you mentioned two very important things. One of them, you know, ch parents of, of children with special needs or of all children really are the best advocates and they spend the most time, you know, in most cases, in any case, they, they spend the most time with their children and, you know, they know what happens in different settings. Um, so that is something, you know, when we have our lectures and they're all voluntary, so we have a group of teachers who are very active and I love seeing them over and over again, but I would love to see more <laughs> new faces. And that's one of the biggest things, you know, your communication with a parent has to be good, like, and you have to trust that. I mean, no, parents may not be professionals in your area and they may not be, you know, psychologists or they may not be teachers and they may have no idea of what your structure is, but they do know their child. And, you know, this trusting that parents do know and, and know what works and what doesn't work, right? And just mistakes, like being open to criticism or feedback even, um, that is something that our culture really struggles a little bit with that too because what you said you know i've been doing this for 20 years and it has been effective according to you know some measures um some some of them are very arbitrary but you That's know right. they're very arbitrary yes. and you know so then they're like why do i need to change for this and and the other thing that you said and i always say this Anytime that I talk about inclusion and I bring up projects for, for children with autism, I start with this will benefit all children. Mm -hmm. Because as an adult, I have days that I'm not feeling it. However, if we expect children to come into school, you know, and be in a good mood every single day and behave exactly the same. You know, we have these expectations of, you know, oh, I know Anouk already. These are her characteristics. And if one day she behaves a little bit different, we don't sit and, and think, oh, my gosh, you know, what might be going on? We're just like, no. Um, so I think that when we talk about these programs, it's very important for teachers, professionals, and parents of, you know, neurotypical children um, to understand that this is not going to harm their program. This is not going to disadvantage their children. It actually will continue to advantage them because they might have days where they struggle a little bit. They may have, you know, subjects that they struggle with or may need more creativity with. Um, and just being in an inclusive um, setting, you know, growing that empathy level and understanding of us being different and what other people may need really benefits the development of children. So so I think that those are two important things that everyone needs to, to understand, you know, respect parents and, and what they're telling you, believe them, and understand that this will benefit everyone else. And I think that, that those are two things that if you can bring that across to everybody involved, <laughs> we can move a couple of steps further and not spend so much time and just, you know, fighting each other on that particular point. So we have another question in here. Parents have to fly in resources. That's something also that parents do. Sometimes they'll get together if we don't have a specialist of something and they'll fly in someone. Um, and, you know, they're saying the ones who can afford it um, or they find guidance through web sessions with therapists outside of Aruba. They're saying that we need a, to, a team in Aruba Oh, wait, um, Here's a team <laughs> <laughs> that works with each other in the interest of the children. If the parents can organize it, it must be possible. Any thoughts on a multidisciplinary center in Aruba? I mean, I have thoughts, but <laughs> I don't know if, if, if you guys have thoughts about these type of centers. So, yes, that's the type of approach that I'm used to is a multidisciplinary approach. Um, and what I really love the most about it is if I need to consult with, let's say, a speech therapist, I have someone readily available to consult with them and bounce ideas off of. You know, the one thing that I have noticed, even by today, but long term, since you know we've had these discussions for a very long time, is 
Everyone is so dedicated and passionate about helping the children, not just those with disabilities, once again, all of the children in Aruba. So it's a matter of figuring out who is going to be part of that multidisciplinary team. And yes, we've started the team by the discussion today. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, and that is actually part of what I think doesn't work the best in the system in the United States because not everybody is, quote, on the team. Some are considered to be what's called ancillary providers. So they're only brought in as needed. And a parent may think that they're needed more so than a different professional. Um, and those are, you know, just certain professions, but they're so valuable and so needed. And that's what I keep you know, thinking is, who do you want on that multidisciplinary team? Um, and I also come from the approach of no child should go without or no parent should go without. So I, you know, will take the time and I receive referrals quite frequently from parents saying, I just don't know what to do. I don't know who to call. And I will take the time and explain to them and let them know they are not alone. That's the biggest thing is parents should not feel as if they are alone by themselves experiencing this. Chances are someone else has done it already. So that is part of what I think our next steps are, is to start thinking about the teams and who, who will be that team. One of the things that we've learned and are continuing to learn since the pandemic is the fact that, that everything doesn't have to be done in person. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea of telemedicine and teletherapy is a very emerging idea and thought amongst lots of people. And so in a situation like Aruba where you have a certain amount of isolation because you're an island, um, perhaps exploring some of those and building, um, building um, a technology into the system might be another way to think about it, that mm -hmm. sort of out-of-the-box thinking, oh, it's not necessary that we have to fly someone in. Mm -hmm. It could be that we can interact more frequently if we can and, and efficiently and cost-effectively if we do that in uh, using technology. And so who would have ever thought that we could accomplish some of the mm -hmm. things that we have until the pandemic came? And then it was like, well... I guess there are other ways to learn. I guess there are other ways to create uh, communication. And I'm happy you mentioned that, Mike, because um, a lot of kids on the spectrum here in Aruba, they cannot speak our native language or even Dutch. Mm -hmm. They speak English. And then with these resources, I feel like they are learning more than for to be forced in a Dutch system that they will not be able to learn as much than just they are understanding everything better in English. Why are we not using this language so that they can learn more? And I think um, because of the pandemic, it also made it easier for them to continue their ed education through online. Because so. it exploded. I mean, all of a sudden there were, there were internet resources that nobody ever knew existed mm -hmm. because everybody was struggling to figure out a way. Well, we've got all this all yeah, this kind of stuff forced to us. do, but we don't have any way to exactly. do it. And so. And then it's also nice because throughout the pandemic, I've seen a lot of parents here in Aruba just sharing their day-to-day -day experience mm -hmm. with their child with autism. And I think that is something wonderful, one, that we do live in such a small island and they are willing, you know, with all this taboo going around, that they are willing to normalize it and they're willing to share their experiences. And you can see that there is an engagement and for me, it was something so beautiful to see all of, um, you know, all of the parents sharing, you know, their child has a tantrum, and they actually ask, do you guys have any tips? And I don't know, I think, I thought it was very nice that it, you know, it's baby stuff that we're still trying to normalize it. And I don't know, I follow this one particular parent. I think the way she does it is so nice. And At the Institute for Human Development, we have a program called uh, Family to Family. And so that family-to-family -family program specifically matches parents together so that they're able, to, um, they're able to mentor one another. 
So um, they really feel lots of support when they can talk to another parent as opposed exactly. to always talking to the professional. Wow. Well, that is something that um, pre-pandemic we started doing some, you know, like a support group. But then we were like, okay, so how are we going to shape this in a way that's beneficial for everyone? So we gave it like themes. And, you know, we, we talked about today we're going to talk about nutrition. You know, nutrition can be anywhere from limiting sugars and stuff like that. But also, how do I go about with my childhood does not like the texture of rice, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so we would talk a little bit about the science behind it and why this happens. And then we would do like the parents would share like, oh, we had the rice problem, you know, <laughs> and this is how we work through the rice problem. And parents were sharing ideas and tips and tricks which were so handy, you know, children who were chewing up their uniform, they're like, no, you need it to be printed and not embroidered, you know, all these little things that, that were so helpful. And, um, you know, little by little, we created like this community, we started doing like the online sessions, you start getting people who are just curious, right? Aunts and uncles who usually wouldn't come to a session, they start logging in, they want to hear a little bit about this, they get excited. And then um, we made a very um, bold, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think it is that bold, but it was for a community. But, you know, I said, we need advocates from the group that we're advocating for. So, you know, we have two, two autistic young adults who are advocates and they're sharing all these things. They have different perspective on different issues, you know. And it's so great because people really had a moment of like, okay, whoa, you know. In our newsletter, our writers are all autistic young adults. Sometimes we'll have parents, you know, write stuff. And then everybody kind of had this moment that they're learning so much more because they're relating that scientific information into what it looks like in everyday real life. Um, so yes, um, we have one question in the comment section and we'll answer that and then we'll move a little bit into closing. So there is a question about Gemini as an online speech therapy platform. Do you know anything about this one? I don't know it either. Mm -mm. I'm not familiar with it. Okay. <laughs> I would be very interested in <laughs> knowing, you know, is it, does it go back to the telehealth to where there's a speech therapist that is guiding a family and strategies? But no, I'm not familiar with it since Me I'm neither. Not a speech therapist. But we might need to look it up. Yes, I mean, it definitely. sounds interesting. So, yeah. So, let me see if I have any um, unanswered questions. But I think just as a closing, you know, um, what is our goal? And I mean, I think that, that for everyone sitting on this table, that might sound a little bit different, but I think for closing arguments, <laughs> I want to hear from everybody. And then I'll, I'll mention my point too. Like, what is our goal? You know, Dr. Hantek, what's your goal so, for this project? <laughs> so my goal for this project, and I will, I will say, I do not plan on just being here this one time for the week that I am here. The plan is that I will return. The plan is that I will continue this work um, and make multiple trips back to Aruba to help families and children and professionals work through the system. So please do not think that this is a one-time conversation. But my ultimate goal is, once again, the same for everybody. I want the young children and families of Aruba to have what they need to be successful and to understand that, yes, things happen, and yes, there could be traumatic things in life that could be a result. There could be medical conditions. It varies from person to person. But how to be successful and to thrive and to say this is the best that I can do for my child. In all of my years, I have never known a parent that has not wanted the best for their child, even when they were in the most challenging situations. They want the best. And how are we going to do that? And that's exactly why we are here. Thank you. Anouk, can you tell us? There's so many thoughts going through <laughs> my mind. I can't um, pick one. But I would definitely want to start working hands-on with the children. And um, I want parents, because 
you know, we're in this field, and since there's not a lot of professionals in this field, in Aruba, you, you know, and Aruba's so small, you bump into, you know, the parents in the supermarket, and I'm, like, tired of hearing them saying there's a lack of help, and I want it to be more positive where they do not feel they're alone in this. And also at the daycares, I want them to feel that they have help because they feel like they're, you know, they're they're willing to help these children. They they want to help these children, but they don't know how. So if we go think about like what is the specific goal, it's a little bit difficult. But I definitely want an early intervention system in Aruba. That's definitely the main goal. And um yeah, definitely having Carolina and I have some other young professionals that I do want to be, you know, on this team. And um, I also wanted to thank um, the social crisis plan um, because without them, um, you know, none of this would have happened. Um, and it's also, uh, you know, we were talking about the pandemic, how during the pandemic, I actually got this job and during this pandemic, we are making this happen. So um, I'm looking forward for this and definitely um, other future plans that we have. Um, there's so many plans we have and we it's only an hour, but um, hopefully in the future when you come back, we can do an updated session. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Anouk. Um, Dr. Mike, do you have any um, goals for this project in, in you know, just in general? Um, so I have lots of goals for the project, but um, apart, it, greater or higher than the project, I think I have a vision. And so our vision at the Institute is that uh, for our locality, all the people in the state of Missouri uh, with disabilities will um, uh, thrive in, in an environment that they, where they uh, live, work, and play. And so we think about that, and I want to impart that to Aruba as well. And to share that, it's like, how can we come together as a community and bring people together so that um, this is a place where all people are valued and, and then all people work together to ensure that everyone is lifted up at the same time. We bear that burden together and we think about that together and say, we want to make this a place for everyone. So that word inclusion <laughs> is like so important mm -hmm. to think about. Everybody's included in this. And so we want to create a culture where everybody is welcome and all children have an opportunity uh, regardless of their ability or not. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, and I mean... I wouldn't say anything different. That's really, you know, when I when I decided to join the foundation, Anouk, you know, knows this. I really made a conscious decision, and one of my main things was like, okay, but inclusion. we need to work on inclusion. Like, I want to see, you know, I want to see children become valued members of our community, participating members in all senses, you know, in play, in education, in work. And um, I am so happy that because of the pandemic, we were able to push so much on social media platforms. Again, you know, this is, these are silver linings. And we pushed a word, um, a concept in people's minds. And, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting here with you guys and we're, you know, doing the summit, talking to so many different people and what their role are in this goal. So definitely my goal is for us to have an inclusive community where everybody, you know, feels valued, has opportunities and reach their max potential, whatever that may look like for them. So I want to thank um, all of you for joining me today. I want to thank everybody who watched our show today for tuning in on this subject. This was a really interesting episode for me. And I see that um, people thought it was an interesting episode too. Um, this will be available on podcasts as well, on whatever platform of podcast you use on YouTube. So, you know, share this with people who you think might benefit from this. Once again, this is Sincerely Carolina. And we were all very sincere today with, you know, <laughs> what we want to try to achieve. So I'm really happy for that. Um, but yes, and I do hope to have you guys um, on my show again when you come back. 
not if, but when. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. But thank you so, so much, everyone. Thank you to Soppy Mix Studio. Remember to tune in into our other shows and stay pending. Next week, we are going to talk to Becoming Equal Project, and they will be talking about the LGBTQIA community and what they think you should know. So tune in. Thank you so much. This was Sincerely Carolina, and I hope to see you again soon.